The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing, the reading of God's Word this evening from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, page 73, if you're using the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 33 and verses 1 through 23. Let's give careful attention and worship the Lord in the way that we receive his word this evening. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. When Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name." Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. That's for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, God of Israel and gracious and loving Father to us, as we open up your word again this evening, would you come and work by your spirit, uh, cause us to come truly unto you, Lord God, with, with open hearts, eager to receive and to believe and to obey all that you would teach us. Please bless us that we in turn might bless and magnify your great name, for we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I want you to imagine something this evening. If you think back to July of last year, I think it, that's when it was, when we first announced our plans to, to plant a new church down in South Wake County. Just imagine if we could have back then, say, looked into the future and been able to see all of the Lord's provisions or a strong core group or a seed group, right, of families and individuals, all folks eager to be part of this new church, all willing to work hard and to to be doing the work of organizing, thinking through of all the details and doing all that's necessary to prepare for this work. The Lord provides good men to serve as elders, a good man to serve as a pastor. He even provides a suitable meeting place for worship. All has been organized. All has been well provided for. Everything is in place to begin a new church except one thing. You know where I'm going with this, right? One thing missing, one person missing, and that's God. What if the Lord had said, I will send you to Southway County, but I will not be going with you? Well, we see that that's basically what goes on in our text this evening. Here the Lord had agreed not to consume and destroy the nation because of the terrible sin of the golden calf. But what does he tell Moses? He says, go, go, I'll give the people the land that I've promised, leave them there. I'll even send my angel to drive out their enemies. I'll give you that good land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Now we know, of course, that it was God's plan that he would in the end go and be present with his people, but he desired that they And we seriously contemplate the unthinkable, the prospect of life in Canaan without him. What would that be like? Disaster. In this context, then, the the situation for Israel seems to remain a bit disastrous. But this provided further occasion for them and for us to see the marvelous work of Moses the mediator. Moses continued to plead. He pleads with the Lord. And what is the particular thing for which he pleaded? Not just salvation from destruction, not just some blessing from God. What Moses pleaded for was God himself, the Lord's presence and how wonderfully the Lord granted that very plea, this very thing that you have spoken, I will 
do. Our message this evening is this. The Lord grants the blessing of his own presence through the intercessory work or or because of the intercessory work of Moses. Once again, by God's beautiful design, we see Christ in the work of Moses. And this evening, I want us to note three things about the work of Moses as the mediator. I want us to see first the way Moses binds his people to himself. Secondly, for their sake, he is known and favored by God. And then lastly, somewhat interestingly, we'll note that he has promised that for which he longs, which is to see God's glory. Note first then the way he binds his people to himself. Now we should understand that in speaking of not going with the people, what God was was saying here was that the, the consequence of Israel's sin would be that there would be no tabernacle. The tabernacle would not be constructed, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no no tabernacle for the glory of God to fill. God would not dwell with or meet with his people in the land which he had given them. So in pleading for God's presence here, Moses was was pleading for the plans of the tabernacle to go forward, and that's what God grants. But note how in pleading for God's presence, Moses binds himself to his people, or as one writer puts it this way, as Israel's mediator, Moses attached their destiny to his. And that's really the implication of verse 16. What wonderful words we see there. Just consider those those four words near the end of the verse. I and your people. Wonderful words. I and your people. I will not be separated from your people. The Lord had had spoken, you you may recall, of, of separating Moses from the rest, consuming the whole nation while making a, na- a great nation of Moses alone. But God moved Moses, we saw, to intercede. And here again, we can marvel at the great work of the mediator interceding and binding his people to himself. This is God's work. This is God's grace. It points, of course, to the the marvelous, incomprehensible, condescending grace of God in Jesus Christ, grace that you and I can't even begin to fathom this evening. Just think about it. Think about the the glorious things to which this text points us, the the fact that that God himself, God the Son, the one who dwelt in in glory and pure, holy fellowship forever and ever uh, there in in the triune Godhead with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, to think that he became a true man in order to become our mediator. And as the God man mediator, he, God, has now been bound to us, indeed, to all who are truly in Christ. We have been united by the Spirit through faith to God the Son. He has bound us to him forever and ever. That's beyond our comprehension. But that, that, that's what God is giving us to understand as he gives us the picture of this, he, given to Israel, but ultimately given for us in what we see here, that the person and work of Moses So on the one hand, we see his unique and supernatural fellowship with the Lord. This is something Moses enjoyed, which the rest did not. We saw it in his 
mountaintop experience, 40 days on the mountain, sustained by the Spirit of God. We learn sustained without bread and water. In some ways, it was like a a heavenly existence, Moses in the presence of God. We also see it, I think, in this, this interesting other thing, which we see in our text in verses 7 through 11. We see this thing called the tent of meeting, verse 7. Now, this is not uh, not to be confused with the tent of meeting, the, the, the tabernacle itself. In fact, we see a, a contrast with that. The tabernacle tent of meeting will be situated right at the center of Israel's camp. But here we see, interestingly, that Moses pitched this tent, verse 7 tells us, outside the camp, far off from the camp. And on the one hand, I think this, this, this separation again speaks to the fact that the, the golden calf sin has caused a breach of fellowship, which needs to be resolved here. That's the whole point of the separation and the, the mediation away from the people. We see from the end of verse five that the Lord was, was determining what to do with the people. And as mediator, Moses becomes involved in the, the deliberation about that. But we should see how the separation notwithstanding, this this tent uh, also represents something of a bright glimmer of hope amidst the otherwise sad, dark context. Think about what we see here. Here they were mourning over the disastrous news that the Lord couldn't possibly go with them. They'd be destroyed. It twice says, if for one second the Lord was with them. Here they are mourning and stripping themselves of their gold. This is repentance, by the way. It represents repentance. At least we see the outward exercises of repentance, say what we will about what was truly going on in the hearts at this point. But what do we see? Amazingly, this this tent of meeting, yes, it's on the one hand distant, far away from them, yet on another level, it provides a means of access to God. In fact, we see in verse 7 that the people were able to seek the Lord there. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Did it mean they were going for, you know, uh, judgments to resolve conflicts? Were they receiving guidance from the Lord? Were they going there to worship the Lord? We do see in verses 8 through 10 that even the experience of seeing Moses go out and meet with the Lord, that became a worship experience, that they would stand there at the the, the, the doors of their tents and they would watch. We're told in verse 10 that the people would rise up and they would worship. Strange. What are we to make of all of this? I think Dr. Morales helps us on this and gets this right when he suggests that Moses' personal experience here in verses 7 through 11 is a foretaste of the later blessing which the entire nation will enjoy. That this far-off tent of meeting situation is a situation which will be reversed when the tent of meeting will be erected and it will be situated right in the heart and the center of the, of the 12 tribes, right in the center of the camp, the place where the Lord will indeed meet with his people. What Moses enjoys, the people will also enjoy by God's beautiful plan, God's design. Moses is binding his people 
to himself. And brothers and sisters, we know that that is most excellent, wonderful, good news. I want to build on that truth then as we consider the second thing that we note about Moses this evening, which is that for their sake, he is known and favored by God. What a a great moment is that which we see in verse 17 when the Lord tells Moses, as I cited it earlier, this very thing which you have spoken, I will do. So God promises here that the plans of the tabernacle will go forward. The plans won't be scrapped. It will go forward. But what does he say next? On what basis will Israel enjoy that blessing of God's presence? The Lord says, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So the Lord grants the blessing of his own presence because of Moses. I think this helps us understand something else very important, which we can say about the what we see in verses 7 through 11 and that, that mediatorial work of Moses in that tent of meeting. Dr. Morales rightly makes this point. He suggests that, that Moses' experience here was more than just a foreshadowing of what late, of what Israel would later experience. But listen to this. He writes, Moses' experience was the effectual basis for the later experience of Israel. He had used his own tent of meeting and face-to-face relationship with Yahweh in order to secure Yahweh's dwelling among his people. We hear those words and we say, how wonderfully this, this points us to Jesus. The work of Moses points to the work of Christ. Just think on that. And as we think about the, 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 the blessing of the presence of God and ask ourselves the, the question, how much do we value the, the, the blessing of God's presence? That question is, 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 is immediately linked to the question, how much do we value the work of Christ this evening? How valuable is Christ and what he has done to you this evening, brothers and sisters? Question should, which should, should have profound application for us, right? Let us challenge us as we think about how much we value the presence of God in our lives this evening. Do you treasure your God? You you, you can tell how much you value a person by how important it is to you to be in the presence of that person, to spend time with that person. It's certainly true even uh, with regards to our human relationships. A husband who truly loves his wife will love spending time with her. He'll delight in being with her, delight in in listening and hearing what is on her heart. He'll want to be learning how to love her better. Same is true with other relationships. We think of our relationships with our children or with our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, if that's true uh, with our human relationships, how much more is it true with our God? We think about, about, about the time we spend daily in the presence of God, how much time we spend in the word, meditating upon the things of the Lord, how much time we spend praying to our God. Does your faithfulness in your private worship, as well as your faithfulness in corporate worship, reflect a high esteem of the blessing of the presence of the Lord? I'm sure every one of us would, would acknowledge that we have room for growth 
in this area. We are being sanctified. Well, may the Lord grant us such growth as we remember that the blessing of the presence of God is the reward of the work of Jesus. Is Jesus precious to you this evening? Is what Christ has done for you precious to you? Just think on that. Think on the perfect obedience of Christ, the perfect intercessory work of Christ. There's something truly worthy of our meditation and our worship and praise. And maybe it helps you this evening if you think of it this way as you look at our text. Was there anything that you could do to save yourself? Could you atone for your own sin? Could you make intercession for yourself? Could you purchase for yourself eternal life? a home with God in heaven forever and ever. Of course not. Christ had to do it all for you. And I would submit to you that that's what we're being taught as we look at Israel standing at the doors of their tents from a far, far distance, right? Playing no part in what's going on. All they could do is watch. All they could do is look at Moses going out there and meeting with God and seeing this amazing thing. And they were moved to worship Worship God for what he was doing for them. So beautifully pictured what Jesus would do. In truth, we know that that, that special favor uh, before God, that, that knowledge of God which Moses enjoyed, it was all because of what Christ would do. It's Christ. He's the one who is, was known and uniquely favored by God. He's the one who lived perfectly according to that knowledge and that favor. And he did so, brothers and sisters, all for us. What is it that motivated that, that perfect obedience? It was, it was his great desire that we would also be known by God, that we also would enjoy that favor with God. And we see that so wonderfully reflected in, in the heart of Moses, what we see going on in our text. Note the interesting thing which we see in, in verse 13, as you look at that again, verse 13 says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. We might read those words and think, well, isn't Moses kind of wrongly sort of prying into the business of God, the secrets of God, you know, his his secret plans? I don't think we should see it that way. I think we should see this as all part of the, the good intercessory, intercessory work of Moses. God moved him to do and with which God was most pleased. Moses' desire to know, to know of God, to know of his ways in this context is all very good. But it's also good in the sense that he desired this not only for himself, but also for the people. He says this, note this here, this is important. He says, this nation is your people. We see a contrast there with what we see in verse one, where where basically the Lord says in so many words, this is your people, Moses. (laughs) This is your people. He says, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt is like, like, like Moses is saying, this is your people, but we know that, that it was the will of God. This was God soliciting again that intercession he desired. It was God's will for Moses to say, no, this is your people. Don't just bless me, God. Don't bless me, Lord. This is your people. Bless them. Don't just favor me. Don't just grant the knowledge of yourself to me. Bless these ones who are 
your people. And, and Moses was saying, bless them and bless them with your own presence, Lord. Life in Canaan will be nothing unless you are there with them. What is it to be blessed but to have God himself? That was the great intercessory prayer of Moses. And according to God's great plan and God's great design, Moses was known and favored for their sake. Moses was granted the very thing for which he interceded, the very thing that you have said, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. But note that that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses wanted even more than that. Look at verse 18. What does he ask? Please show me your glory. This brings us to our last point this evening. And I stated it this way, that Moses was promised that for which he longed, which is to see God's glory. What do I mean by that? I want to suggest something about the last verses of our text, verses 18 through 23. And really those verses could have been taken with the next section in chapter 34. And so we're sort of beginning beginning what we will continue here. But I want to suggest that this is an important message of everything we see in the book of Exodus. This illustrates for us something which we know to be true about the old covenant, about God's revelation of himself to Israel and even to Moses in the old covenant. It was incomplete, wasn't it? This was by God's design, by God's purpose and plan and design. It held forth the prospect, the promise of something even greater. And so what happens in our text? Note that Moses makes this request to see the glory of the Lord. Does God grant the request? In one sense, yes. In one sense, no. Really, Moses, by asking to see God's glory, he was asking to see God's face. Let me see your face. You know, you really, you really don't know someone. You don't really spend time with someone unless you are present with them, they with you, and you're staring them in the face. And it's strange. On the one hand, as we see in verse 11, and as we know also from elsewhere, Deuteronomy chapter 34, And verse 10, Moses was like no other prophet who arose in Israel. He's described as the only one who knew God face to face. And yet, as we see in our text, verse 20 makes it clear, he never truly saw God's face. To see God's face, even for Moses, would have meant death, just as certainly the people would have been consumed by God's presence if he'd gone with them without their sins, at least having been properly dealt with and atoned for. But as a sinner, Moses, just like they, needed protection from the glory of God's holy presence, lest he be destroyed. Hence what we see in verses 21 and 22, we see the Lord's the Lord's promise of that, that rock where Moses will be able to stand. The Lord will, will place Moses in that cleft of a rock, that place where he will cover Moses while his glory passes by. I think of the the classic hymn, right? Rock of ages, a cleft for me. It rightly suggests that, 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 that what we see in our text gives us a beautiful picture of the work of Christ by his atonement. He, he hides us. He, he covers us. He saves us from being consumed by the judgment which we deserve because of our sins. But we see in verse 23 that, that Moses was not 
able to see God's face. He would only be able to see his back. Why is this? Ultimately, the answer is because Jesus had not yet come. Jesus had not yet come. The curtain had not yet been torn down. The veil of separation had not yet been removed. Ultimately, God's people would come to him, not through Moses, not through the intercession of Moses. They would come to him, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 20, by that new and living way, which Jesus would open up through the curtain that is through his flesh. And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the the thing which Moses longed for but never received is that which has come to us this evening. The sacrifices, we know, they were but, but types of that uh, the, the, the atonement that Jesus would make when he would go to the cross and he would offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, all that Moses and Israel would come to enjoy, all that for which Moses had pleaded, even the, the cloud covering the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, as we'll see at the end of the book of Exodus. All of these were but types and shadows, types and shadows of the law of the old covenant. These things all pointed forward to God's greater revelation of himself. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, writes the apostle John, chapter, uh, John chapter one, verse 17. How would God's people come truly to see his glory, not in any earthly tabernacle, but in Emmanuel? the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, as John would write in John 1.14. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He would write in, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. How could he say that? What about Moses? No, no one has ever seen God, and that includes Moses. Certainly no one has ever seen God, had ever seen God as the Son uniquely had seen the Father. But wonderfully, as John continues, the only God, the only God is that, that is God the Son, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Brothers and sisters, as, as those this evening who are the children of the new covenant, those who have received the, the, the testimony of the apostles concerning Christ, his, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, what we have, what we enjoy, even as we're here this evening, hearing this message proclaimed, is we enjoy something greater than anything Moses ever experienced. Greater glory, just as Jesus is greater than Moses. Hebrews 3, 3 tells us Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. We have something even better than the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, poured out upon us by the crucified, risen, exalted, ascended Christ as the church, the body of Christ. We are the temple in whom Christ dwells by his spirit. He is within us collectively as the body, even as he dwells in each one of us individually by the spirit we are told that God has, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And a day is coming when we will see him. A day is coming when we will see that glory. We'll see him not not just by faith, but we'll see him by sight. Uh, is, Is that something you long for, brothers and sisters? Is that something precious to you? Do you long to see Christ, to gaze upon his face, to see him in all of his glory? I hope you long for it, and I hope you know that that's something Jesus also longs for. He wants to show us that. We know it's true because he said so in his high priestly prayer. He prayed to the Father in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus longs to show you and he will show you his glory. And you even know that glory, you know his presence even now. We're told in Colossians 127, that, that, that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Dear Christian, may the Lord build you up and build me up in that hope this evening as we think about seeing Christ enjoy his presence even now. Is the presence of the Lord, is the Lord himself everything to you this evening? If you had nothing else in this world but Christ, would that be enough for you? Would he be enough? for you? Would you be content with him? Think about everything we could possibly lose. Like, what if your health goes? Maybe you've been long battling illness, and you're beginning to wonder, wonder, really, will I ever be well again? If if your health goes completely, but you still have, ask it this way, would you rather be healthy without Christ or be sick and have Christ this evening? Maybe economic trials, are you able to see this? say this evening, I'd rather be poor with Christ than have all the riches in this world, but be without him? Maybe you battle loneliness. Are you able to say this evening, I'd rather have Christ and be without anyone else in this world than to be surrounded with all kinds of friends, but be without him? Maybe you're one this evening who's long-desired marriage, and yet you find yourself single. Do you find the grace of Christ this evening sufficient to be able to say, I'd rather be single and be with Christ than be married and be without him. With Moses, shall we not this evening say, Lord, I would, I would rather remain in the wilderness of trials, but have you than to be in the land of Canaan and be without you. Or to bring this back to where we began this evening, we don't want a quote-unquote successful church in South Wake County, but one that is without Christ. Talk about a complete contradiction, right? What we desire, what we pray for Zion Presbyterian Church, what we pray for Shiloh Presbyterian Church is Christ himself, Jesus, his blessed presence. We say above all, give me Jesus, right? Fernando Ortega, if you like his music, give me Jesus. You can have all the world, give me Jesus. Dear Christian, let that be your song. Let that be your prayer always and rejoice in knowing that that God has given him to you and given you to him and you have him and you will be with him and you will see his glory in glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, how we bless you for 
the wonderful way in which you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you, O Father, for giving us your Son, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making us to understand and and to receive all of these things. And we pray, O God, that these truths would so fill our hearts that we would indeed live our lives with a great longing to see you in all of your glory, even according to your precious promise. So, Lord, may we treasure your glorious presence, even as we enjoy it now, enjoy you now in our union with the Lord Jesus. So in our lives, may we bring you glory and honor and worship and praise now, even as we will forever and ever. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.